But Lent refers to the season in the church. This is, these are the six Sundays before Easter. And Lent is actually 40 days. The period is 40 days. And it begins with Ash Wednesday, which we just had this past week, and takes us all the way up to the Saturday night before Easter morning. Now, some of you who are a little bit more astute, you just maybe quickly did the math, or maybe if you look at your calendar and you say, wait, Fran, there are not 40 days between Ash Wednesday and the Saturday night before Easter. There's actually 46. Well, if you figure that out, you are correct. And the reason for that is, is that we do not count the Sundays during Lent as a part of that 40 days. And the reason is, is that Lent is kind of reminding us, we're remembering when Jesus was in the wilderness, when he fasted for 40 days. And it is a time of self-denial, of reflection, of repentance, as we prepare ourselves to journey with Jesus to the cross, to the resurrection. But Sundays are what we call mini-Easters. And so this is a day when we can actually kind of cast off the the self Well, I guess we should always be self-reflective, but it's, it's not as much a day of repentance as it is a day of celebration as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus in the life of the church. Well, enough about a little bit of church history right there, but we are kicking off today a sermon series, and it's entitled, Jesus Revealed. Jesus Revealed. We are going to be in the book of Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. As you know, in the New Testament, there are four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one tells their story a little bit differently. And so we are going to be looking at six events or six ideas, six themes, six, six big ideas in the book of Matthew as Matthew develops these that really shine the spotlight on who is Jesus? Jesus revealed. What is his heart? Who was he? What is he like? And we're going to look specifically at how Matthew developed this story, how Matthew developed his picture of Jesus. Now, before we dig in, I want to give you just a brief overview of the book of Matthew. Some of you might know this, some of you might not. So to catch us all up, Matthew was one of the 12 disciples. Now, some scholars would say, "Ah, I don't know if Matthew wrote this. He doesn't actually say, I, Matthew, am writing this book. But tradition tells us that Matthew was the author. So we're going to go with that. We also know that Matthew was writing primarily to a Jewish audience versus a Gentile audience. Now, why is that significant? And it is, and it's going to be significant to our message today. The reason is, is that this Jewish community, so I mean, let me just back up here. Sometimes we read the scriptures and we read them with our, our you know, our Western 21st century worldview and kind of our lens. One of the things we have to step back and remember is that this is an ancient text that was written, you know, some 2,000 years ago. So when Matthew first penned these words, yes, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were God-breathed. They are God's living message to us today. But the first people that would have read these words, heard these words, they were a church, a congregation, Matthew's congregation. And these were primarily people who had grown up 
Jewish. They had grown up going to synagogue, going to temple. Uh, the Pharisees were their religious leaders of the day. That would have been their pastor, the folks that they looked to. And so they had grown up Jewish, learning the Old Testament stories, walking by that old covenant. And now there is this new covenant. Jesus has done a new thing. And they have pulled out of the synagogue, and now they have formed this new community. And so one of the things that you're going to see if, in the book of Matthew, and I do hope as a side note, I want to invite you to join us during these six weeks to read the book of Matthew in your private devotion. You know, uh, it might be a little difficult to read it all in one setting, but, but over the weeks to come, we hope you'll join us in looking at the big story. But, but going back to Matthew, so one of the things that you're going to see over and over and over is that they're wrestling with this big question. And here's the question that they're wrestling with. How do we kind of reconcile the old and the new? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus versus being a disciple, say, of the Pharisees? You know, they had grown up with this other religious order. And so Jesus is a, is a continuation, a bridge, if you will, between the old and the new. He says, behold, I, I've come to establish a new covenant with you. What are those Old Testament laws do we still need to follow? Which ones do we not? How do we still be faithful to Yahweh God in this new reality? Another thing that you're going to see developed throughout the whole book is this constant tension between the Pharisees and Jesus, that old religious order and the new, the old covenant, the new covenant. So that kind of gives you a frame and a setup for this whole sermon series as we're looking at these events. So before I dig into the scriptures, though, today and the passage that we're going to be looking at from Matthew 4, though, I want to tell you about an experience that I had this past week to just kind of, it's going to, this is going to give us uh, just kind of a frame for today. So I'm a part of a leadership group, and um, it's with another organization, and, and we were having a meeting, and we had a facilitator in, and we were about to discuss a topic that uh, was going to be potentially controversial, that there would be in the room people that possibly might be on very different uh, opposite viewpoints on this particular topic, uh, passionately uh, have differing views. And so the facilitator, before we began the conversation, and he had some slides and all that kind of stuff, but he said, but I want to, before we kind of enter into this conversation that might be a little bit of a hot topic, I want us to frame how we're going to have this conversation. And he talked about having a, a covenant, ground rules, if you will. Some of you might have done this before you got married, kind of here are the ground rules before we have the hard conversations. Here's what we will do, what we won't do. And so we talked about how we would listen with respect. We would speak the truth in love. We would assume the best about the other, uh, be kind in our words. And so, you know, stuff that you've heard before. And then he said something, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's good. He said, uh, he said here's the thing I want y'all to remember. So, y'all, this is good. You might want to write this one down. He said, mean is not a fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> I was like, oh, man, that is so hard and good. And, oh, man, let's just go home right now. All right, mean is not a fruit of the Spirit. And I tell you, as I started thinking about what he said, and I thought, yeah, snarky is not a fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> 
eye rolls and contempt. That's not a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, the little sarcastic jabs here and there, gossip, all those things that I think sometimes we do. Um, and I got to thinking about that, and I thought, what is it that at some level is so satisfying in your soul when you think you're right and the other person is wrong and just kind of this pride and this arrogance sets up in your heart. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. Uh, you know, it might be if you're a young mom or a young dad that, that you judge that family down the street because they're not doing according to the rules that you created in your head that you think they should be doing. Or maybe it's a coworker that uh, is pretty much always late to the meetings and you're like, ugh, you know, rolling your eyes in contempt and thinking, man, can't he get it together? And in those situations, you always feel better about yourself when you're putting that other person down. Or maybe you do it this way. Maybe your criticism and your critique, your, critique, your judginess is not focused outward. Maybe you turn it inward at times where maybe you speak up in a meeting or you say something to someone and then you go back home and you think, man, why did I say that? Why did I do that? And your, your self-critique is so hard. You're very hard on yourself, uh, judging yourself, uh, fussing at yourself in your head, and there's just kind of this negative judgy loop rolling around in your head. I don't know if y'all have ever done that, but what I call this voice in my head, and I'm going to say my because I'm just going to own it because I'm your pastor, I'm human, and I, you know, I wish that I were perfect, but the reality is I'm not, but Jesus is perfect in me, and hopefully I'm moving on to grace and perfection in him. But I call this voice in my head the Pharisee in my head, the Pharisee in my head. So as we dig into the scriptures today, we're going to unpack a little bit about some of the things that Jesus says about the Pharisees and also unpack what Jesus says it means to be a true disciple of his. And my goal and my hope for you and my hope for me is that as we unpack these truths, that we are going to lean into that as we become more and more like Jesus and hopefully less and less like the Pharisee. All right, so if you've got your bulletins, let's open up the scriptures here. Um, it's our passage is found in Matthew 4. So this is very early in the Gospel of Matthew. Just to give you some context of what has happened, the beginning of the book, Matthew 1, we've got the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, Jesus, we find that he is born of a virgin, that he is going to be named Emmanuel. God is with us. That's very important. Matthew says he is Emmanuel. God is with us. Next, we see the, the birth narrative, all the stories about Jesus' birth. We see that Jesus is taken into the wilderness. Uh, well, first he's baptized by John. Then he goes into the wilderness, the 40 days of fasting. And then Jesus, I mean, Matthew cuts to the chase pretty fast. And then he says, and Jesus was going about and he was preaching, repent, believe. Just a sentence, very, very quick. And then we start right here in Matthew 4. Verse 18. And Jesus, or as Jesus, was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. I love that. That's kind of obvious, isn't it? <laughs> they were casting because they were fishermen. Anyway. And Jesus said to them, Come 
and follow me. And I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Going from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Now, when you read Matthew's account of the calling of Peter and Andrew and James and John, it feels kind of odd. I don't know, as a, as a young Christian, I can remember reading this passage, and you read it, and you just think, it's almost like Jesus is kind of doing this Jedi mind trick. I mean, does it, re- it kind of reads like he's walking along, he's walking along, and all of a sudden he goes, you, <laughs> you know, he calls him by name, you know, Owen follow me, you know, and Owen goes, I will, and then they go, you know, it just kind of feels like, I mean, like, did y'all know each other, had you had any conversations, (laughs) this is just, you know, you've left your family, you've left your nets, you've left the whole business, but Luke, thankfully Luke, gives us more background, and so you can read about that uh, maybe this afternoon, but Luke lets us know that when Jesus made this call to these four disciples, it was not their first encounter. Luke tells us that actually Peter, and Luke kind of lays things out, gives a lot more detail, that um, Jesus had actually healed Peter's mother-in-law prior to this call. He had gone to his home. Peter's hometown is Capernaum, and Jesus had been preaching there in the Galilean area, and he had actually been in Capernaum. He had been doing works of miracles. Uh, Demons were being cast out. Uh, There had actually also, according to Luke, uh, Peter, I mean, Jesus had told Peter to throw out his net, and there was this miraculous catch. So you see that there was this relationship, this knowledge, this understanding that had been growing and growing and growing. And then, according to Luke, Jesus says, Peter, come and follow me. So my question is, as I'm looking at this and I'm saying, okay, Matthew, you've got the same information. Why did you not give us the backstory? Why did you omit that? And why did you say it this way? I don't know that I have an exact answer, but here is what I think, and I invite you to ponder and wonder along with me. I think that it had to do with the fact that Matthew was not as concerned with kind of developing the character and the storyline of Peter and James and John like we might do in a modern-day biography. Uh, You know, sometimes if you're watching a good movie, you like it when there's good character development. Um, I don't think this was his purpose. I think that his purpose instead was to say, this is who Jesus is. Jesus revealed. He is Messiah, the Son of God, the King that would come from the line of David. He is the suffering servant. He is Emmanuel. God is with us. And he is calling people into a relationship of discipleship. And I think his message was so important that he starts with that. So I want us to lift up a few things from from this call, and you're going to see some of these themes repeated. And then I want to draw a slight contrast 
to what it might have looked like to follow the Pharisees. Remember that that's what we're looking at, the old and the new, his audience, the Jewish church that has now that like left the synagogue, now they're this Christian community. What does this look like? So I want to lift up just a few things. The first thing is, right there in verse 18, it says that he saw the two brothers and he called Peter and his brother Andrew. And you see that repeated. I think the beginning here is that our relationship with God always starts with God initiating a conversation with us. In our Methodist tradition, we call that prevenient grace, preventing grace, God's grace going before us, calling you, calling your name. The other thing that I think is important here is that he doesn't call us, and I heard someone say this before, he doesn't call us to be Lone Ranger Christians. He calls us into a community. These were brothers. These were friends. I mean, I can imagine if you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, it's not a very large place. It's really just like a huge lake. And they were there. I'm sure that they knew of one another. They probably had talked, the two families. They were in the same line of business. You know how you know people who do the same work that you do, maybe with a different company you often your paths cross. And he called them into a community. The other thing that he calls them into, and I think this is critical, and we're going we're gonna to set this up. He calls them into a relationship with a person. He calls them into a relationship. Remember, Matthew told us that, that Jesus' name was Emmanuel, God with us. He is inviting them into a relationship with this, this God of heaven and earth, Jesus, who is, you know, God's son. And, and we are called to walk with him in a journey, in a relationship that takes place over the course of our lifetime. Now, when you think about Peter and Andrew and James and John, what did they know about Jesus at that time? They had seen him do miracles. They had heard him preach. They believed that he was from God. Did they fully understand that he was Messiah at this point? My guess is they probably did not. And I think that's one of the things that is so key is that as we follow Jesus, as we enter into this discipleship, it is really about an ongoing relationship. I mean, for those of you who are married, and if you've been married for a long time, I think you get this. My husband and I have been married 31 years. And I know Mark today in a way that I could have never known him 31 years ago. But 31 years of living together, having three children, you know, crying together, going through the ups and the downs, times that were good financially, times that were hard financially, moves, all of this, we have grown closer and closer and closer as we have We've known each other. We've had life experiences together. Our trust in one another has increased. Our, our reliance on one another has increased. Our commitment to one another has increased. And that's what a relationship does, a long-term relationship over time. And that's what Jesus was inviting these disciples into. You know, there's a, an interesting story a little bit later in Peter's life. And, and it, often Peter represents the, the whole, all of the disciples and then represents us as well. But there was a, a conversation, and, and we're, you know, good ways into Jesus' ministry here. And Peter, I mean, Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, you know, who do people say that I am? 
And so they're going, well, some say you're Elijah, some John the Baptist, some Jeremiah. And then Jesus looks at him and he says, well, who do you say that I am? Ah, question. That's a good question. And Peter says, well, you are Messiah. You are Messiah, son of the living God. He had gotten that. My question is, would he have, do you think he could have answered that question that way the day that Jesus called his name? I don't know that he could have. But then, to show how still Peter's knowledge gets clearer later on down the road, the next thing Jesus says in that setting, he says, now, let me tell you what's about to happen. He said, I'm about to go to Jerusalem. And he said, and there, he said, the religious leaders, I'm going to be, I'm going to suffer. And he's beginning to tell them, basically, I'm going to die on the cross. And Peter, sweet Peter, outspoken Peter, he goes, oh, no, 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 Jesus. No, 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 you know, not not the cross, not, not suffering, not pain. We are thinking, yes, Messiah. Messiah, kingly Messiah, the Messiah that's going to destroy Rome and set back up the kingdom of Israel back in the glory, like the glory days when David was king. He didn't quite get it. And it wasn't until later when Jesus had experienced seeing Jesus on the cross, when Jesus had experienced seeing the resurrected Lord, when Peter had experienced Jesus forgiving him for when he denied his Lord and Savior. Do you see how discipleship is about a long road of obedience, all in the same direction, saying yes to Jesus, saying yes to Jesus? I think there's another thing that this passage tells us, is that when you say yes to Jesus, often it requires letting go of something as you say yes to what he's calling you to. It might be a relationship, it might be an attitude, it might be a habit. I don't know what it is, but my experience has been that following Jesus does require sacrifice of me. It requires me to let go of my snarkiness, (laughs) for one. It requires me to say yes to him. And this is how Matthew is framing what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, we're asking that question, how does this compare to, how is this different from the Pharisees? One of the things that you're going to see about the Pharisees is, on one hand, they get a bad rap. On the other hand, they kind of deserve it. Sometimes I deserve it too. The Pharisees were the rule keepers. They were the ones that I think initially when they first began to emerge, they had a great desire for holiness. And that's not a bad thing. God is holy. He is a holy God. He is righteous. He is pure. There is no sin in him whatsoever. And they had a great desire for holiness, to be pleasing in his sight. And what began as a good motive turned into something else. And I think that's what religion so often does, is we are being invited into a relationship with the Holy God who will change us from the inside out. But instead, they began to put rules and regulations and standards and expectations in order to say, yes, we are righteous. 
and they were very they were constantly thinking about who is righteous and who is unrighteous who is good and who is bad who is in and who is out and Jesus rebukes them and and, and Matthew 23 is a great is a great example of this that there are seven woes where he kind of he just kind of lays it out to the Pharisees and he says woe to you scribes and Pharisees woe to you scribes and Pharisees woe to you scribes and Pharisees seven times he says it and there's several things that he is condemning them for and and again Let's remember, Matthew includes this because he wants us to know this is not discipleship. This is not it. And, and I invite you to read it, but some of the things I want to lift up for you about the Pharisees and what they did. He said, you have all these rules. He said, you know that we're supposed to tithe. And he said, and you, you even are tithing off of your, your, herb, your herb garden, your spices. And he said, but you're neglecting the weightier, the weightier parts of the, of, the, of the Old Testament, love, justice, mercy. He says, you have all these rules. And he said, but here's the thing, you're requiring this of your followers. He said, but you're not lifting a finger to do it yourself. He said, you are like whitewashed tombs, but inside your hearts are still wicked and evil. And, and really what he kept pointing to was, was you don't have love. And they had set themselves up into this judgmental, prideful kind of place in their, in their heads, but then in their hearts, but they had actually developed it into a whole system. And I think as I read through this and I was asking the Lord and I was saying, what's underneath all this, Lord? What is it? What is it that you would say to us at Macedonia? And I felt like the Lord was saying to me, that pride is at the heart of it. Pride is at the heart of it. They set themselves up. They wanted the praise of men, and they set themselves up where they were. They were judgmental and critical of others. You know, in comparison, Jesus was saying, I don't, I don't want you to do it that way. It's a relationship with me, and it's always a relationship built on love. And, I, and lest I be misunderstood here, I, I heard someone say that God has called us at times to think critically, but to not be critical. And so I want to clarify that. There are times when you know something is not what would be pleasing to God. You know, we can think, we can be critical thinkers in a good sense where we are bringing solutions and bringing ideas, but not being critical and judgmental. As I kind of thought about this and I wrestled with it this week and was just praying over it and kind of letting it massage in my heart, you know, I asked the question, well, what's wrong with that little snarky thought that sometimes I will think and that's just real? What's wrong with the, the roll of my eyes that I make sometimes or the judging thoughts that I have towards somebody else when they aren't doing things the way I think they should? Or when I turn that same weapon on myself and I'm critical internally. Here's what I think it is. And I think, you know, let's go back to Jesus said the two greatest commandments. What are they? You love God and you love people. He said everything, you get those two right, you're good. When I'm being critical and judgmental and when you are of others, you can't be empathetic towards that person. It kind of shuts it down. So if I'm called to love my neighbor, 
as myself. And maybe they aren't raising their kids the way I think they should raise their kids, or maybe they're not doing their job the way I think they should do their job, or maybe they're, maybe they're, you know how we, I don't know, maybe y'all don't, but I know how I do it in my head. Have I ever stopped to say, Lord, what is that person's life like? Help me understand their world. Put myself in their place. How can I see the world through their shoes? Does that make sense? But it's hard to, to do that. And so it breaks down this relationship. And I think I said this the other day is people can feel it when you're being critical and judgmental. And it, and it breaks down the conversation. And that's what I think that, that gentleman who was our facilitator in the story that I told earlier, that's what he was trying to say. We are not going to be able to move forward. We need as a group to have a hard conversation. But we're not going to be able to have it if we are criticizing and critical and judgmental and, and we're so in our separate camps that we can't listen and hear each other's hearts. The other thing is, I think when the Pharisee in our head is just kind of, you know, has the, keys, has the keys to the house, so to speak, and we've turned that on ourselves, y'all, it hurts our relationship with Jesus. When we are living and letting those condemning those self-critical thoughts bathe in our hearts and in our minds. We are separated. It's like you feel distant from God because you feel like he's mad at you. You feel like he's angry. But the good news is he's really not. He loves you, and he wants you to run to him. He wants you to run to him because that's what he called his disciples to was this relationship. And, you know, you look at Peter, and you see he messes up, but I like to say he always falls forward, and Jesus is there to draw him back into community. And so as we look at Matthew's gospel, here at the very beginning, he's asking that question, what does it mean to be a disciple? It means to be one who has heard the master call his name, who has taken one step forward, who is called into community, and who is called to live sacrificially. Because here's the thing that I know that when, you know, you might ask the question, well, friend, aren't rules important? I mean, there are certain ways that we should, things we should do, things that we shouldn't. Here's my experience is that when I am trying to follow closely after Jesus, the Holy Spirit has, you know, when I've said, Lord, have your way, have your way, Lord, here's my heart, have your way. Well, if you pray that and you really mean it, I can promise you the Holy Spirit will do the job and he will nudge you when there's something that he wants you or y'all to work on. And I, I'll give you just an example, and I, I'm just going to kind of be blunt and honest right here, is that um, last week I was, um, you know, somebody said something to me and I, you know, sometimes a brain is fast and I thought this, I thought of a snarky put down and, and the words were coming out of my mouth. And I did not stop then. <laughs> and we were, a, and, and there was a joke and a laugh. And I just felt this, uh, this grief in my spirit. And I thought, well, it was, it was a joke. It was funny. It was funny. It was a joke. And it kept bothering me, and it kept bothering me, and it kept bothering me. And I thought, yeah, it, Lord, I don't have to repent, don't I? <laughs> and I just felt like I was going, mm-hmm, and not just to me. What? Oh, all right. Anyway, so I found the person, and I said, hey, I want to apologize for what I said. I said, it was kind of a low blow, and I'm sorry. And they said, oh, it wasn't a big deal. And I thought, yeah, 
It was because what? Snarky is not a fruit of the Spirit. Snarky. And I say all that to say is that, you know, I think as we lean in, we follow Jesus, he does the work in our hearts. And it's my hope for you and my hope for me is that we head into this Lenten season, not belly button Lent, but the season of the church Lent, where you will be following the master, looking into his eyes, saying, Lord, here I am, take all of me, help me be the person that you want me to be. I want to join you, Emmanuel, God with us. Imagine how we can be um, the impact that Martha Bowman can have if we live into this. And, and I'll say, um, just as a side note, but I think it's really not a side note, you know, there are hard conversations I know that go on in your homes, at work. There's also hard conversations that are going on with us as a nation. You know, our hearts this week grieve, grieve with the families in Florida. Um, as a mom, I cannot even, I almost can't even let myself think about what they must be feeling and experiencing. And there are conversations that we're having as a nation around the school shootings and how this seems to be happening more and more frequently. And some of us, even in this room, are going to be in different places about what we think those solutions might be. Here's what I know is Jesus is in the marketplace. Jesus is in the school. Jesus wants to bring his wisdom from the church. And maybe we don't all agree, but how can we have those conversations in a way where we approach it as disciples of Jesus rather than Pharisees kind of entrenched in our positions and shooting arrows at one another? I think that's what he's calling us to be, is to be his disciples in our homes, at work, in our neighborhood, in our friend groups, but also in the world today. Let's pray.